Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 360. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. All right, folks, first things first. Time to announce the winners of the 2014 Drabblecast People's Choice Awards. As is the case each and every year, our fans convene within the hollowed walls of the Drabblecast discussion forums and nominate their top five favorite 100-word stories, 100-character stories, episode cover art pieces, and main feature stories. We narrow down the top five nominations in each category, and fans come back and vote on a fave. Very close competition this year. Really some nail-biting moments in there, but in the end, I think creativity and talent won the day. Let's start off with Best Episode Cover Art, The Crevasse by Hannah Holloway in episode 338. Fantastic and foreboding image of a man with a flashlight exploring an ancient Arctic cave. Straight up movie poster quality, people. Really captured the tone of the story. Congrats, Hannah. Best 100 character twabble, Brian with a Y, with this one here from episode 335. The marionette boy dreamt of a world enveloped in string, from city to tree to cloud to moon, the freedom to fly anywhere. Congrats. And best 100-word drabble this year by Phineas QP with The Summoning in episode 337. I listened with mounting horror, unable to intervene as she spoke the dreadful syllables I had so feared. Yeah, Thursday's perfect, Mom. The fear swelled to horror and my blood began to chill. It'll be so good to see both of you. My very sanity grew thin and weak, straining under the weight of those words, alien sounds they were that made no earthly sense. Oh, nonsense. Jim doesn't care. You two stay as long as you like. Give Dad my love. I'll see you both in two days. No. The mad fool had summoned the grating old ones. Congrats. And of course, we save the best for last. Drum roll, please. Oh, my cat doesn't know how to play drums yet. I'll just get to it. Voted best story of 2014 by Drabblecast fans everywhere. Winner of the Drabblecast Sacred Chalice of Glory for, unbelievably, the second year in a row. Shannon Garrity for her original story, To Whatever, in episode 335. Rumi, look, I apologize for missing dinner. I didn't know you were making spaghetti and trapezoidal prisms. I'm not very good at reading those runes that only appear on the bathroom mirror, you know. They're backwards. And also runes. Yes, all right, I did promise to be home for dinner, and then I didn't, and that's on me. I'm sorry. I'll make it up to you. But it's unfair for you to take it out on Willem. Last night he woke up screaming and babbling about the city again. 
I tried telling him to ignore the man-faced cats and get to that green mandala neighborhood that's always hovering over the iron bridge because it looks like it has nice bars, but he just stared at me, and now he's in a mood and I don't think he's even noticed the mark branded on his back yet. There will be hell to pay when he sees that. It's immature of you, is all. He doesn't need this. He's got to defend his thesis next month, and his car broke down. He's under a lot of pressure, is what I'm saying, without getting teleported into bad neighborhoods. Ethan. Best story on the Drabblecast, two years in a row. Last year she won with flying on my hatred of my neighbor's dog. Literally at this point, Shannon's batting two and doe for not only having submissions accepted to our market, but for having those stories also then go on to win best story of the year. Doing something right, I tell ya. Shannon just taps into that perfect wellspring of weird that's our mission to find and produce. It's no coincidence. Shannon's writing is sharp, clever, twisted, and very funny. You'd be doing well to follow everything she does. In a non-creepy way, I mean, on the internet. Not like in a creepy internet way, though. Like, I mean, go into her website and Twitter and stuff. Not her house. Who said anything about her house? Her website's Shannon, that's S-H-A-E-N-O-N dot com. Congrats to all and many thanks to all who voted. Special thanks to our DC forum mod, Algernon Sydney's Dead, for arranging the contest in our forums this year. Until next year, folks. Until next year. All right, moving on to our show this week, another trifecta special. Know you folks love those. Our theme this week for our trifecta is three stories about locked boxes, that which you cannot have. We bring you Coffee and Cornbread by Alicia Cole, God-Shaped Box by Dave Thompson, and Trimming the Fat by Catherine West. Alicia writes speculative and literary poetry and fiction. She also writes educational and spiritual nonfiction. She edits professionally, dances burlesque, and has coined the term chibi horror. She lives with a photographer in the suburban wilds of Atlanta and helps tend a menagerie of furred, finned, and scaled animal babies. Dave Thompson's the fantastic former editor of Podcastle and an all-around awesome fella to know. His stories have been published in awesome magazines or anthologies like Escape Pod, Travelcast, Pseudopod, Journey Into, well, a lot of podcasts. But he's also had stuff in print, too, at Apex, Murky Depths, the Triangulation Anthology Series, and forthcoming at Beneath Ceaseless Skies. And Catherine West, Miss West discovered the best way to make a living with an English degree was to learn welding. After a career building and inspecting railroad cars, she's marketing a novel about an agoraphobic architect and writing a series of fairy tales for her good dog, Freya. Guest producing our trifecta this week, the very talented Adam Pratt. The cast of this week's travel cast, in order of appearance, Ibba Armancas, Trendane Sparks, Jacob Boris, Logan Waterman, Adam Pratt, Matthew Sanborn-Smith, Nick Cam, and Veronica Giguer. So without further ado, we bring you Coffee and Cornbread by Alicia Cole, God-Shaped Box by Dave Thompson, and Trimming the Fat by Catherine West. Coffee and Cornbread by Alicia Cole. It's a universal law. The customer wants the one item they can't afford. I've been working at this diner for three years now, on the edge of Saturn's farthest ring. I watch the rock shards tumble past our containment shields. The sun is so far away. 
Serve me up some hash and grit, Sally. Cletus hangs on the counter's edge, his work sleeves rolled up. If we needed fresh ham, those forearms would do. Shipments from the terrestrial planets come in real slow. Before we open, the lights are off. Spaceships navigate around the safety beacons. Drivers on long hauls hustling in, waiting for their morning coffee. Saul's in back, heating up the grill. I polish up the front case. The apple pie is fresh. The peach, eat at your own risk. Somebody's gonna want a slice. If I put cream on it, you wouldn't be able to tell anyway. It's a two-person show, this diner. No money for a third. Sometimes, before we kick the sign on and open for the day, we take bets. Who's gonna ask for a job today? If it's a kid, I may give him a free cup of coffee. We never take bets on the egg. Bottom line. Saul's order. The egg is only for sale at the right price. I've lent the egg before. Saul was pissed at me. Cletus bartered for a freighter captain he was courting. They took a spin around Jupiter together, got into a tangle with some speed enforcers, before she took off for the edge of the solar system. The next day, Cletus returned the egg. I made it up to Saul with some coffee and cornbread. You ever wanted to go to the surface? I'm polishing the egg when Cletus asks me. It's apex gleaming. Not much for a pressure suit. That, and I'm not keen on floating through layers of gaseous atmosphere. Saul claims it's beautiful. The thought of tumbling through those clouds makes me shudder. I've been down to the core of Venus. Shine a flare on it. Pure metal like Saul's frying pan. Pressure suits Cletus, I remind him, shaking my head. They make me queasy. I punch the combination into the computer. The lights of Phoebe's diner flare both inside and out. The waiting ships connect their jet bridges to the port doors on the sealed loading ramp. Saul punches the latch on the door. Business is open. It's hash and toast the first few hours of each day. Then they're asking for grilled cheese and more coffee. One captain eyes the egg speculatively. What's it for? What do you mean, what's it for? After polishing the counter, I serve up some peach pie for a young know-nothing just in from Jupiter. The captain's face sours at the wrinkled fruit as I ladle cream on top. Can you eat it? Saul pokes his head into the kitchen window and bellows. Of course you can eat it. The egg is very large for an egg. I wouldn't eat it if I were you. Cletus comments. The women seem to like that egg. As Junior bites into his day-old peach pie, the captain gives him a better-him-than-me shrug. Cletus earns a scowl. That's the price? He jabs a finger at the signboard, underneath the egg. As usual, it's resting in the display case on a yellow egg cup. If you want the egg, you have to pay for the egg. I finish polishing the counter. Too rich for my blood. I refresh the man's coffee. The egg seems vaguely disappointed. The captain's back a week later, still eyeing the egg. Can I put a down payment on that thing? The words are halfway out of his mouth, and Saul's already howling. No! The captain leaves without drinking his coffee. Saul. Saul's arms are crossed on the counter. Closed for the day, he's pouring some whiskey into a coffee mug. He fills mine up for me. Where'd that egg come from again? Shawnee. He begins, the name sounding in his throat like a chime of choir bells. My own throat tightens on my whiskey. 
She was storm surfing on the planet. Said it came out of nowhere, a great cut of cloud like a bird's wing. Saul's looking all wistful, which has never happened before. I'm beginning to really hate Shawnee. And then, surprise, a big old egg. I finish curtly. Saul's eyes narrow at me. Yeah, pretty much. Tumbled out of the cloud and she caught it. Do you think we're asking too much for it? It's the only fucking egg of its kind this side of Mars base. Maybe even the whole solar system. Somebody wants something that rare, they'll pay for it. I'm still sore at Shawnee the next day we open. Saul's always been sweet on me. Part of the deal, working a diner this far out. Dried up from too much whiskey, I'm a spitfire when the customers pour in. No joking, no flirting. Just serve up that food and get them on their way. A few of them tip more. Seem to enjoy me better. The captain hustles in a third time. Cletus is sleeping at the counter, sick of trying to cheer me up. I've come to buy that egg, he tells me. Saul's got the grill up high, sizzling. He doesn't hear. But you're asking too much. 300 Rothgars? I'll give you 150. He's not much to look at, this captain. But he's grinning that particular way as he slams down a stack of Rothgars. I make a quick count. All there. Hold on a second. I smooth my hair behind my ears and duck my head back into the kitchen. Saul? He doesn't bellow. Knows I'm moody. What do you need, Sally? That captain's back for the egg. Put down 150 Rothgars just now. Saul raises an eyebrow, wipes the sweat from his brow with a gloved hand. I'm half expecting him to scream about the price, but this morning he shrugs, gets a glint in his eye. Told Shawnee I'd buy her something nice if the thing ever sold, but she ain't coming back. You want some new stockings? My eyes widen, but he's grinning like he's serious, and I'm not so sore on Shawnee now. She can't have my new stockings, even if she comes back around these parts. It's a deal, I tell the captain, hustling to refill his coffee. What are you going to do with it? I was thinking of seeing if it'll hatch. He pauses, deadpan, then starts laughing. (laughs) Nah, honey. I haven't had a fried egg since I left Earth five years ago. Get that chef to cook this baby up for me. The yolk is purple and pools around the captain's plate when he sops it up with a bit of toast. It tastes like... well... I don't quite know. Like... blueberry jam? Molasses and egg white. His forehead is furrowed. Not like any proper egg at all. The Rothgars are already safely in the till. I'm backing away, just in case. Then, the captain breaks into a beatific smile. Best fried egg I've ever tasted. In a few weeks, I've got two new pairs of stockings, and Saul's bought a better bottle of whiskey. Business is booming. That captain's still feeling lucky. His trade route's going well. Some tufts of feathers are sprouting at his ears. Looks sort of distinguished. Still, I tell you, if I was a freight captain out on a long haul, I'd order up some coffee and cornbread and leave alien eggs alone. God-shaped box. 
by D.K. Thompson. I didn't kill God. We should clear that up right away. I just captured him and put him in a little box. It sounds harder than it actually was. Hannah helped me make it. Her dark, sad eyes so serious and focused behind the wire rim glasses she always wore. Her slender fingers tracing the passages from the Bible. A long time ago, God gave instructions on how to build a tabernacle for him to inhabit. That story made us wonder. If the infinite can be confined to a building, or a tent, or a room, then why not a box? Together, we scaled it down so the temple box could fit in my palm. It looked like one of those buildings in a snow globe you'd buy at an airport, just without the shell. God went easy, without any kind of struggle. That's the strangest part, really. A lot of people ask, why didn't God fight? Why did he let us do it to him? To be honest, I'm really not sure. All I know is that we put him in the box, and he never tried to stop us. How? We just asked him. We had a little help prayer amplifiers that played recordings of other people begging for God to come, the signal directed at the box. Hannah and I prayed too. It was the first time I'd prayed since our son Adam died. I even closed my eyes. When I let go of Hannah's hand and looked at the box, it glowed, pulsing light, like we'd captured a sun. I almost touched the box, but Hannah stopped me, reminded me how God killed a man for touching the Ark of the Covenant to keep it from falling into the mud. So after that, we carried the box around in a glass case, completing the snow globe effect. One time, before he got sick, my son told me he was going to draw a picture of God can't believe I discouraged him. There was something else he was supposed to be working on, so I suggested he come back to the picture later. One of my biggest regrets in life. Never seeing that picture. Never getting a chance to know what my five-year-old thought God looked like. Another is never actually seeing God myself when we captured him. I don't even know if he was a he or a she. I would have liked to have ended that debate, to have seen with my own eyes. But blessed are those who have not seen and believe. The day after we captured him, I called a press conference. No one believed us, of course. Not at first. Some doubted and tried to discredit us, but... After a few years, nobody paid them any mind. The rest of the world caught on pretty soon. People didn't stop believing exactly, but more people, churches, and religions expressed a feeling of disconnect, a void in their belief system they hadn't experienced before. Not just Christians either. The Buddhists gave up on Nirvana. Muslims stopped making the pilgrimage to Mecca. Pretty soon, no one went to church, 
temple, or wherever they practiced anymore. Some people kept praying even after they found out we'd stolen their prayers. The next step was obvious. It was the reason we'd gone through all this in the first place. We asked God to bring our son back. He'd done this before. Why couldn't he do it for us? But God refused. Actually, he didn't even respond. I wanted to throw that stupid box against the wall. We'd expected this. We were made in God's image and we'd overthrown him, become like gods ourselves. So it was time to make things the way we wanted, in our image. Hannah asked other questions. He never answered, but he did react. We studied and recorded the situations and tried to figure out how he worked. We ran tests and experiments, always careful to never touch the box itself. We observed how prayers interfaced with God. We measured how they affected him. Sometimes the glow faded. I liked to think he was sleeping then, that we'd tired God out. Other times the box shook and the light inside flashed, but nothing ever changed. We learned a lot. We grew in knowledge and stature and wisdom and understanding and nearly became omnipotent. After a few months, we transferred half the prayers directed to God and harnessed them to ourselves. Since we couldn't make him do what we wanted to, we tried to duplicate the infinite inside the box and put it into ourselves. We almost got it right. We withdrew Adam's body from the cryo storage facility, bought him out, and plugged him into a monitoring and life support system, one that would jumpstart his body and keep it running. All we needed was to get his brain functioning. We took all the power directed at God, rerouted it through our prayer harnesses, and sent it to our son's brain and nervous system. Sometimes, Adam's little body would twitch on the table. Once the shock of it even opened up his eyes. But no matter what we did, we couldn't bring him back. It devastated us. Hannah sobbed and sobbed, staring at him and screaming at the box. She and I fought over everything from scientific methods to what dinner we should microwave. Hannah had the breakthrough, realized the emotions were getting in our way. So we built wireless spinal tap interfaces and tapped into our brains, rearranged our neurons and chemical balance. The first thing we did away with was pain, replacing it with happiness. That made things with Adam easier. Next, we changed our immune systems, made them stronger, almost destroyed death, extending our lives just shy of immortality. Then we gave it away to everyone in the world. For a while, it was bliss. War stopped because no one wanted to fight anymore. Sicknesses were cured, 
crime rate dropped and the economy boomed. It was a new era of peace and prosperity. And every night people went to bed happy, knowing the world would be there when they woke up. We didn't pay the rest of the world much attention, though. We just kept trying to bring Adam back. And kept failing. It would have been frustrating if we hadn't been so happy. But we stayed happy. We knew we'd figure it out eventually. Sometimes I thought I saw Hannah's smile falter when she looked at Adam. But when I asked her about it, she just smiled and shook her head and we'd bury ourselves in our work. Then one morning I got out of bed and realized Hannah wasn't there. I walked into the lab where we kept the God-shaped box and saw the glass case had been removed. On the ground lay Hannah. Her skin was cold and she didn't breathe, but she had a smile on her face. Clutched to her chest was a picture of our son, her other arm outstretched toward the box. All I felt looking at her face was happiness. I tried and tried to feel something different, but I couldn't stop smiling. I didn't like it at all. I stared at the box and didn't do anything for what felt like a long time. I opened it, hoping to let God out. I don't know if it was to free him or scream at him or commit suicide. It doesn't really matter, because he wasn't there. There was nothing inside. The box was empty. God had disappeared. And all I felt was happiness. Then I realized the box wasn't glowing. Maybe it had stopped when Hannah had touched it. I disconnected myself from the prayer harness, but left Hannah online. Maybe the prayers would do her some good, wherever she was. I briefly wondered what happened to heaven and hell while we kept God occupied. Then I accessed my chemical balance and tried to do away with the happiness. That lasted only a few seconds. The sadness melancholy that hit me was so overwhelming. I cried for days. Even after I restored my happiness levels. In the end, I could only tone it down a little. Ever since then, I've been looking for God. Traveling all over the world trying to find him. Sometimes while I'm searching, the happiness fades a little bit and longing replaces it. I like that sense of longing better, I think. I don't know why God stayed in the box for as long as he did, but I'm not so arrogant to believe we fooled him. I think he went into the box because he wanted to, not because we made him do it. I don't pretend to understand why. 
I still haven't found God. But I hope I find him again one day. I'll keep looking until I do. Trimming the Fat by Catherine West. In the interests of economy, Dr. Palmer scheduled Callie's liposuction as the first procedure of the day, judging her extraneous bulk more than adequate material for the bust enhancements and lip augmentations to follow, which would have all taken place on time were it not for the appearance of strawberries in the suction tube. Maureen, the tech, thought the burst of red pulp meant the doctor had hit some fleshy tissue by mistake and signaled him to twitch the probe to another roll of flab. But the continued presence of seeds in the filter convinced her they should reevaluate the situation. When the doctor scoped the incision, the images on the screen were indisputable. Callie's paunch consisted of raspberries, strawberries, and the occasional ripe mango. They left a drain in place, the largest piece of tubing they had, and it steadily dribbled fruit into the basin as they wheeled Callie to recovery. Dr. Palmer visited the waiting room to talk things over with Callie's husband, Charles. Uh, have you noticed anything odd about your wife lately? He asked, then seeing the confusion on Charles's face. Does she often produce food? Breakfast, usually. Not real good at it. Seventeen years... Still burns the toast. We do takeout for dinner. He got another cup of mediocre coffee from the waiting room machine, wincing as his ulcer tensed in anticipation. Callie awoke to see Charles and the doctor sitting beside her, one on either side of the bed. Maureen stood at the front, monitoring the output. They'd draped the incision and drain, but there was no disguising the steady ping of berries and now the random walnut hitting the basin on the floor. It looked like the more expensive kind of holiday basket. Maureen had already emptied it once, absent-mindedly popping a bite into her mouth. It tasted juicy and sweet, unusually blood-red though, even for a strawberry. Though, when she thought about it, the whole setup was odd. Charles hung his head in concentration, elbows on his knees. She nursed the kids for a bit. She'd have been making milk then, yes? I suppose, said the doctor. Although... And don't women have eggs? Said Charles, excited, thinking he'd finally gotten a grip on the subject. Does that count? But you don't eat them. Snapped Maureen, as though he'd offered her an ovary with a bit of chopped onion. Does it matter? Asked Charles. I mean, isn't something a food if something could eat it? Even if nothing does, I mean? Everybody looked at Charles. Something plonked loudly into the basin. It's an egg, said the doctor, glancing over. Hard boiled. Do you think it could have anything to do with that genetically modified food? Asked Callie, the anesthetic, producing a sultry slur. I keep telling Charles we should be eating more organic. If they've been doing that splicing thing with what? Tuna and tomatoes? God only knows how we've been changed. Probably got my system all screwed up. Genetically modified... Started the doctor, interrupted by Callie coughing up a perfect rainbow trout. On the small side, admittedly, but making a fine show as it flopped in the tissue. Open your mouth, said Dr. Palmer. Her palate was a lettuce leaf and her tongue a slab of locks. How did I miss that? Not been helping with the prep, said Maureen. I've been telling you. The doctor contemplated her. 
She is a tree of life unto them, he mused. No one seemed sure of whom Palmer was speaking, of Callie or ripe-breasted Maureen with the peaches in her cheeks. I don't know about all that, said Charles. I'm just here because Callie said she couldn't drive herself home. I'm not sure we're going to get Callie home, said the doctor, admiring the stream of peas and pearl onions trickling through the tube. They found a place for Callie in the clinic's solarium, growing fatter by the day. A human cornucopia overflowing with luscious staff lunches, snacks, and cocoa on nippy mornings. To repay her for her services, since reducing her girth appears impractical, the doctor has performed a dozen or so operations on her face, her nose, her jaw, her cheekbones. She looks like a young Audrey Hepburn from the shoulders up, enormous Callie in her caftan and hammock, drowsing in the sunlight, but the doctor keeps thinking of clever ways to make her features even more delicate, shaving a micrometer from her brow, her winsome little chin. He has discovered her bones taste like troubles. And that was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's go to our 100-character story winner this week by first-time winner Gary Doe with this one here. After years in zero gravity, when legs became less important to move from here to there, everyone started farting around. One hundred character stories. We call them Twabbles. You can try your hand at it and post in our discussion forums in the Twabble section. You might be next week's winner. Follow us on Twitter for the winners early each week and other great stuff at the Drabblecast. You can also find us and join our groups on Facebook if you haven't done that yet. It's good stuff. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Drabblecast runs off the generous support of listeners such as yourself. We can't do this without your financial contributions, folks. We greatly appreciate anything you can give. Find support options off our website at www.drabblecast.org. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Carlisle Lynn. Carlisle's an illustrator and graphic designer who loves creating concept art and cover art for authors. What a great fit. She can be contacted via her Facebook page, Carly Lynn Book Cover Design, which we'll have linked in our show notes. Our show this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, I'd order up some coffee and cornbread and leave the alien eggs alone. <laughs> <laughs>